I'm your host, Seth Day. I use he, they pronouns, and you're listening to Rad Child Podcast. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Rad Child Podcast. So last week we talked a little bit about Judaism, uh, and this week we're talking about Islam. So sort of goal is we're talking about it in the hopes that folks who don't practice Islam can gain some insight and knowledge to help answer kids' questions. So for example, maybe they have a Muslim friend or maybe they see someone wearing a hijab, right? We can't answer those kinds of questions if we don't know the answers. So uh, this episode is a little bit more of a kind of informative for grownups episode, and then we'll dive into sort of uh, answering kids' questions as well. So without further ado, I'm going to invite my guests to introduce themselves. So thank you, Seth. Hello, everyone. My name is Ikram Amil. My pronouns are he, uh, she and her. I'm uh, a TCK, but originally from France. My relationship with kids, uh, I'm a mother of three boys, as well as a pediatric nurse and currently working with street street boys in Senegal. My relationship with Islam is a very personal one. I'm a practicing Muslim and also currently living in a Muslim-majority country. Hi, everyone, and hi, Seth. Thank you for having me. My name is Sadaf Siddiqui. Um, my pronouns would be she and her. Uh, I'm currently living in California in the United States, but I'm a little bit from all over. I'm originally from India, but I grew up in Nigeria. For my relationship with kids, I'm the mother of one son uh, who's 11 years old. And I've also um, had founded, uh, co-founded a company called Kitab World, where we focused on South Asian children's literature. So I'm very much uh, well-versed in the world of children's literature. And uh, as for my relationship with Islam, it happens to be, as Ikram also mentioned, a fairly personal relationship. It's sort of uh, part of everyday life experiences, sort of it guides uh, my everyday life. My name is Roxana Khan. My pronouns are she, her, her, um, she, that. <laughs> um, where I'm from, uh, I was born in Pakistan. I uh, came to Canada when I was three years old, and now I would be—I would say I'm from Toronto. Uh, yay, <laughs> Raptors! Too bad they lost. <laughs> My relationship with kids, well, I was one. Uh, also, I have four children who are all grown up, and I have 12 grandchildren. Uh, I'm also a children's author, and I have 13 children's books published. And uh, I'm also a storyteller, so I tell stories to children as well. Uh, my relationship with Islam, I've been trying and practicing Islam since I was a kid, you know, um, and uh, trying to find answers to all my questions and everything. So I consider myself a practicing Muslim. Amazing. Thank you all so much for sharing. So before we sort of dive into the topic, uh, I ask this this question every episode because we talk a lot on this podcast about, uh, you know, times where children ask us questions and we're not totally prepared to answer those kinds of questions, um, just sort of the tricky questions that we talk to kids about. So I'm curious if there's ever been a time where a child asked you a question that you weren't totally prepared to answer or maybe cut you off guard. Uh, doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be related to Islam, can be, but yeah. So yeah, uh, for me, being a mother working with children, there's so many to choose from. But uh, what I thought of uh, this time was, um, 
one one of those hectic days that you're in a grocery shopping with all of your kids just trying to grab everything you need to make dinner work walk like walking fast trying to keep the kids behaving and so forth i think every mother can relate to that situation and passing by where they sell fish and that's when i think he was three my three-year-old asked me like why why did god create the fish if we're going to eat them and so i stopped a bit got confused and i'm like trying to explain to this three-year-old that why they were created and we eat them and then he got very upset with god because he created them for us to eat them and he doesn't want the fish to die and all the fish in the, that shop should be put back in the ocean. Then I had to spend a good 10 minutes explaining that even though we tried to put them in the ocean, they will not swim anymore. And he was upset. He was upset for a week. And I couldn't take him to the shop. I couldn't feed him fish. And um, I feared the day he'll realize what meat is. Well, my son happens to be, uh, he has a great deal of interest in geography and maps. So he's always asking me questions of which I do not know the answers to. So I'm, I'm, I'm always being asked, what's the capital of Burkina Faso? And what does the flag of uh, St. Vincent and the Grenadines look like? And I have no clue uh, how to answer these questions. So I've learned a lot from my son. But I think the, the one question that he asked me that truly stumped me was, um, I think it happened around... Uh, the U.S. elections in 2016. So he basically asked me, um, how many suitcases do we need to pack our home? And and I was very confused by this question because we were not going on any trip or anything like that. So I was like, well, wh- where does this come from? You know, because I thought maybe he's trying to run away from home. What is he trying to do here? But um, he actually followed that up with, uh, don't we have to leave now that Trump is president? And that question really really stumped me for a long time and it took a long time for me to formulate a response to him and reassure him that things were going to be okay even as it was playing out things were not really okay I think that that time I heard a lot of similar stories of kids you know thinking that 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 meant that they had to like all of a sudden leave or you know things like that and I think that uh, I mean it's still it's still hard Um, I'm not sure if I should share this one. It's really was very um, uncomfortable. Um, when my book Wanting More came out, I was actually in Vancouver at the International um, Writers Festival. And I was doing a session and uh, they had invited a Hebrew school. And uh, and I was doing the session and the, the story is about a girl from Afghanistan. And so we were talking about that and everything. And then as the the questions began, uh, they started asking me about Israel, and I thought, well, you know, and I thought, and then, and then, and then I said, and then what happened was they kept asking me more and more pointed questions about Israel, and one of the questions was, do, did I think, and, and it's going along, and I had no control over the situation. I mean, my story is about Afghanistan, it's about Muslims. And um, yeah, it was getting very awkward. And then finally, one kid asked me um, whether I believed that Israel had a right to exist. And I was, and I thought, if I answer this question, and if I don't answer this question, I'm equally doomed. But I thought, let me just be honest here. And I said, look, I wish they had put it in Europe. That's what I said. 
uh, and, and when I and then afterwards, um, the teacher who was there, oh, this was really passive aggressive. She went to the to the organizers and complained because she said that I had made it at about about an agenda. And I thought, wait a minute, she was there with her class and she's letting them ask me these questions, putting me on the spot. And I had if I answered, if I didn't, I was still hung out to dry. So I answered as best I could. And um, I was really happy because the the organizers, uh, they saw the predicament I had been in, and they realized that the teacher should have stopped the students at some point, or even the moderator should have just stopped it. But it wasn't, it wasn't for me to stop. Anyways, it was, it was a very difficult situation. And the nice thing too, was that the lady who had accompanied me, she was like my, my liaison. She was Jewish and she told me I had said nothing wrong. So that was when, as soon as I saw the question, did I, did I, a kid ever asked me about religion? That was the first one I remembered. And I haven't been ambushed like that very often, but uh, that was hard. That was really hard. I think it's especially hard, like as someone who's coming into a school or into a situation where like, you don't necessarily know the kids or have control over them. Um, You know, it's really, it's really awkward to be in those kinds of situations. So I want to spend a little bit of time sort of talking about, you know, I mean, what is Islam for a better, (laughs) lack of a better word? you know, phrase and um, for folks who might not practice and might not really know what it's all about. So we're going to talk a little bit about it and then uh, shift into talking to, you know, how to answer kids questions. And I just to be totally upfront, I'm coming from a pretty blank slate. I do not identify as Muslim. So um, if any of the questions that I'm asking are like, not don't feel good to you, please let me know. (laughs) But yeah, so I'm curious, you know, if you had to sort of talk about the main tenets or principles of Islam, um, what what are they? What is it all about? Islam is quite simple. Like I always tell people like it's not only a religion, it's a way of life. It it wraps around every aspect of a Muslim's life. Now the main tenet, the main principle of Islam is monotheism. There's only one God, and we should live in his worship. And everything we do in this life should be in accordance to the laws of Allah and to the laws of God, sorry, and um, in a way to please God and uh, to be the best versions of ourselves and always be sincere to God. So Islam has five pillars, which we use that if a person has all of those five, that person is a Muslim, to put it simply, like the most simple way to put it. So the first thing is to acknowledge that there's no other deity worthy of worship than God, and that the Prophet Muhammad is his messenger. So that's the first thing, even when a person comes into Islam, they have, we call it the Shahada. So the person has to pronounce that in order to uh, publicly uh, announce that um, this is what they believe in. And that pretty much wraps everything Islam. As soon as you believe that there's only one God and that Prophet Muhammad is his messenger, then you follow the rest. The second pillar is prayer. So a Muslim prays five obligatory prayers a day. Many Muslims pray more than that, but the minimum is five, and they have set times and set ways to pray those. Then uh, we have um, also uh, zakats. We have uh, uh, something we pay 
out of uh, our belongings, like 2.5%, to give to the poor and the needy. Then we have the fasting during the holy month of Ramadan. So it's one month in a year, every year, that every able and non-traveling healthy adult should fast from sunrise to sunset. And uh, then the last pillar is the pilgrimage, Hajj, where every Muslim that has the financial and physical capability should once in their lifetime make a pilgrimage and go to Saudi Arabia where we have our holy city, Mecca, during a certain period of time, do certain rituals, at like the exact same rituals on the same day at the same times during one week. So those are like, like in a nutshell, what Islam is about. Of course, it continues with the pillars of faith, but uh, we say like when a person has those five, they are considered a Muslim, like simply put. Uh, yeah, um, Ikram, I'd just like to make one correction. You said we fast from sunrise to sunset. It's actually from dawn. Dawn is before sunrise. Okay, yeah, for Fajr, sorry. Um, yeah, sorry. I just, because a lot of people make that um, mistake, especially non Muslims. And that's one of my pet peeves in Ramadan books that they say sunrise and it's actually from dawn. Sorry. No, no, don't say. I, I appreciate it. Like, for me, it's rather an English thing. Yes, yeah. It's not my first language. Thank you very much for pointing that out. Yeah, so I think Ikram did a good job of, uh, you know, summarizing what those five pillars of Islam are. And as most Muslims will tell you, uh, Islam is a way of life. And and there are, um, you know, things that we do that are very much uh, part of your everyday. Uh, And the way I like to sort of try and talk about it with people who are non-Muslims, perhaps, is sort of to to sort of tie into similarities with, you know, certain elements of the Ten Commandments in Judaism or Christianity, and also uh, just to sort of talk about share a shared sort of history that we have, because in Islam, we believe in all the prophets and we recognize the teachings of the Old and New Testaments, but, and we call people who are Jewish and who are Christian as people of the book. So I think if uh, we do share I think Islam shares a moral code with most of the world's religions and and along with everything that Ikram mentioned, which are the five pillars of Islam. I think it's really about a call to provide for the less fortunate. There's a lot of emphasis on respect to the elderly, the search for the truth, um, looking out for neighbors and just the, the idea of being just and kind uh, in terms of, you know, even ideas of social justice is very ingrained in Islam. Yeah, I think as someone, I personally grew up, I was raised Christian, and um, I a lot, a lot of the sort of main, you know, main themes um, feel very similar. Wow, you guys didn't leave me much to add. <laughs> Uh, that's what happens when you're coming third. Um, I think the only thing I would really add is the fact that uh, what differentiates um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam is that they're the three Abrahamic faiths. All three of us 
we uh, put our roots back to Abraham. And in fact, Abraham was the one that uh, named us Muslim. Muslim means the one who achieves peace through submission to the will of God. So in, in, in submitting our wills to the will of God, uh, to by, by obeying the commandments and the, and the things that the Prophet uh, brought and showed us and the words of the Quran, uh, we believe the Quran is our holy book. It's the, um, the scripture of God that it hasn't been changed in 1400 years when it was first revealed. It was actually written down at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, on um, scraps of parchment. Sometimes they used the shoulder blades of animals or animal skins. So it was recorded during his time and preserved. And we believe that the Quran actually means the recitation because it was basically a recitation from God through angel Gabriel, who is like the angel that brings the revelation to all of the prophets, to Muhammad, his messenger, peace be upon him. So um, Islam is was named by Abraham about being submit, submitting to the will of God. So, And we believe in Abraham, we believe in Jesus, we believe in Moses, we believe in Noah. All of the major prophets are mentioned in the Quran and um, and yeah, we're not allowed to make any kind of distinction between them, that they were all kind of like one brotherhood calling to belief in one God. That's what we believe. That's super interesting. I, I'm very, from like a sort of an intellectual standpoint, I'm very fascinated by sort of the intersections between the Abrahamic religions. I find it just really fascinating, but that's that's another podcast for another day. And that's interesting that you find it fascinating because there's so many people who just don't uh, know this. They don't know just what Rukhsana said is that we revere all the prophets, Prophet Moses, Prophet Jesus, Prophet Noah. We we have them in our holy book. We consider them our prophets. And there, there are, uh, what should we say, similarities in terms of, uh, you know, the biblical and uh, Judaism and, and Islamic histories. Uh, so I think that coming from a place where of understanding where there are certain similarities is very important because there are so many people who just don't know that. There's even a, a chapter of the Quran called Mary and the story of Jesus's birth, his miraculous virgin birth is in the Quran as well. A lot of people don't, yeah, a lot of people don't know that. I just remember there was, I don't remember who did it, but there was some, I feel like it was a late night show or something like that where they had somebody go and just read, read to random people on the street, like a, a you know, um, something from the Quran and something from the Bible and people could not tell the difference. So could I just add one thing? Because I just remembered, um, uh, I remember uh, as, as maybe Ikram and Ruksana may know this, growing up, I didn't find a lot of Muslim books which told us the stories of the prophets. So, prophets, so all the books that, the stories of the prophets that I read were from biblical books. Like my knowledge of all the prophets initially came from children's books that were about, uh, uh, you know, Christian like biblical stories. So, and then I started looking for, you know, now there is a, um, there are many books about Muslim prophets written by Muslims. But when I was growing up, all my knowledge actually came from <laughs> biblical stories. What I want to add to that is exactly like what Roxana and Saraf has said, uh, that um, we do believe in all of the prophets that came before us. But we call Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu the seal of all prophets. So we do in Islam uh, believe that Jesus uh, was a prophet. And we do believe that anyone who followed him at that time, like also uh, were on the right path as well as Musa, uh, Moise, 
I don't know how they call it in uh, Christianity, but Musa, as well as uh, all the other prophets, Dawood and others, uh, peace be upon them all. Just the difference is we believe that uh, all of them were on the right path. They all called to the worship of one God, and we all they're all prophets of God, uh, just that they were prophets for their own time, for their people, whereas Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu being the seal, he's the last one of the prophets, he was sent to all of mankind. So he was the one we should later on, like all of us that came after him, he's the one to follow because he's the last one and he came for the with the revelation that was for everyone after him. Just to add to that, we do also believe in Jesus' second coming that he's going to come before the the day of judgment and fight the the antichrist. We actually believe in that. That's so interesting. See, I just, oh my gosh, I, I just want to take a take a class now. <laughs> I think all the intersections are so so interesting and I think a lot of times, you know, we you know, people who don't know, and I mean, I'm not, obviously, I'm not an expert, or I wouldn't have you here. I know a little bit about, you know, about Islam. But I think people who, you know, don't know anything tend to think that they're so different, Christianity, Islam specifically. And um, there really are a lot of intersections and a lot of uh, similarities. So I'm curious, are there like different sects or different types of Islam? Absolutely. So all the Muslims, what unites us, uh, all over the globe is we all follow the same Quran. It's not like in Christianity where there will be different... Uh, like 50 million different versions. Exactly. We only have one Quran. So we even have a yearly Quran competition in Dubai where children from all over the world come and recite. And um, we all recite the same Quran. There's zero difference. I can go to a mosque in, I don't know, Pakistan, in London, in South Africa, I will do. I will be able to read Quran, pray in all of those mosques, just the same. Now, the differences that we do have, because we do have several sects, and uh, the differences that come is from after the Quran. So, there's people who follow um, the. We call it the Sunnah. So the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu So there, there have been a lot of books about uh, the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and what uh, he taught us. We call them hadiths. So there are people who follow those very strictly, whereas um, where the Prophet would teach like the what was in the Quran, he would teach us. So the prayer, for instance, is explained, everyone should pray, it's in the Quran. The times of prayer is in the Quran, but now how we pray, uh, some uh, details are uh, taught in the Sunnah. So not all Muslims or people who identify as Muslim will not follow the Sunnah as strictly as others. As well as uh, we have after Islam, we have, we call them the four big Imams. So people who revived Islam and taught Islam and gathered a lot of the knowledge and taught it forward. Uh, there are some people who only follow one of these Imams, whereas some follow all four and some don't follow them at all. So I call it like details. So we all pray in the same direction. We all recite the same things in the prayers. But uh, then details uh, about more about everyday life is where, where we differentiate. And of course, historically, uh, there has been uh, some 
some differences like the main one like people always like to discuss is between Sunnis and Shias which falls back to the differences uh, uh, of following uh, the Khalifa the Khilafa and, uh, and the four Imams so it was more about the inheritance of the, the leadership of Islam so those are the differences but like I said those all came after and uh, what unites us really is the Quran because everyone follows the Quran the same. So that's what I always find amazing is that the Quran has always remained the same and it's memorized in uh, people's heart. Like people know it by heart, so you can recite with uh, anyone. So, yeah, we do have a lot of sects. There's so many. I don't think we have time to go to all the types of them because <laughs> unfortunately there's many of them, but um, we do also have the same holy book that unites us. Yeah. I, hey, on the same, on the same end with Christianity, I would definitely, I couldn't even list all of them, let alone even if I had the time. So <laughs> I get you there. <laughs> I think the one thing that I would just say is the, the main, as Ikram mentioned, is just the Shia and the Sunni sects. But I think what's also interesting, especially if you see it at, at the time of the Hajj or the pilgrimage, is where Muslims from all over the world come to perform the pilgrimage. You just see such a vast um, diversity of the Muslim Ummah or the Muslim community. Uh, I think that's very interesting to sort of note because a lot of people just associate Islam with Saudi Arabia and Islam with the Arabs. And that is, Islam is much, like the Muslim community is much broader than that. There are Indonesian Muslims, Somalian Muslims, African-American Muslims. I think just understanding that there's that there's a diversity within Muslim community as well is sort of an important thing to to mention. One of my favorite kids books um, about Islam is called Ramadan Around the World. It's by Nanda Hassan. I don't know if y'all are familiar with it. Um, but one of the things I love about it is that it represents so many different kinds of people and so many different kinds of Muslims. And, uh, you know, because it, I mean, it's in the name, right? It's, it goes, they go around, basically the book goes around the world and shows people practicing Ramadan um, and how, you know, they sort of practice in their family and their culture. And uh, that's one of the things I loved about the book. It was one of the first times that I saw so many different kinds of Muslims represented in a book like that. Oh, I agree. I wish, yeah, again, I have very little to add because uh, Ikram and uh, Sadaf already did such a good job. Uh, the whole diversity of Islam, I think one of the verses in the Quran that I always, I, like, it always, I always tend to come back to is where God says, you know, um, don't worry, don't argue with people that on the day of judgment, he's going to explain everything, um, the truth of all the matters. Uh, so even when it comes to religious differences, we are encouraged to let people follow their hearts and... Um, I mean, we're not responsible for the way someone else is, someone else believes. And if if God wants, He will guide whoever He pleases. So yeah, there are a lot of sects in Islam. There's, you know, a lot of, like you know, there's Sunni sects, there's Shia sects, there's you know other ones outside those as well. But the whole idea of the diversity of Muslims, like we we come from everywhere, we look like everything, just all kinds of diversity and the seeing the way we practice we tend to pray in the same way we believe in the same god and we follow the same book those are mainly the unifiers but all the other stuff uh, yeah it's very diverse 
Roxana, I think we need to pull out that verse and have it in big bold letters in one of our Oh, you know, you, it's, it's people don't stop telling times. you. No, but people don't stop telling you when you're wrong, right? I like, know. I think they shouldn't because <laughs> they I mean, shouldn't. It, yes. that that verse is actually repeated a number of times in the Quran, and it it refers to other believers. Like a pe- believers are often fond of saying, oh, well, you're not what you're not a believer. You know, I'm a believer, but you're not. It's all that self-righteousness, holier than thou stuff. And really, we shouldn't be doing that. It's it's for God. I mean, either he's going to guide someone or he won't. And maybe we're the ones that are not guided. So we we can't get smug and we can't get superior about things. Yeah. Yeah, similarly, in, in the Bible, there's a verse about, um, you know, that basically that is God's job to judge. It's not our job to judge people. And um, I, I think it's really interesting. You know, I, I know a lot of Christians in particular who are very judgy about, you know, about other people and what they're doing. And what and I'm sure you could find people of any any uh, religion, right? And I, but I always thought that's so interesting, because I'm just like, hey, it's not it's not my job. I haven't, I'm busy enough. I don't need to judge people. I don't have time for that. Right. Uh, but I, I always thought that was, you know, kind of interesting. My last sort of question before we dive into talking about kids a little bit is um, I'm curious what some of sort of the most important holidays are and, or what your favorite holiday is and how uh, they're celebrated. Yeah. So uh, Islam, we have two holidays is uh, called Eid al-Fit and Eid al-Adha. So we follow a lunar lunar calendar uh, as opposite to a solar calendar which is in the west used uh, predominantly where the months are fixed whereas we also have 12 months in the lunar calendar but they shift so they come backwards 12 days every year so uh, we have at the end of the month of Ramadan which was uh, mentioned earlier we have a celebration called Eid al-Fitr uh, in some Islamic uh, countries, it's called Koite, which myself I learned recently that it can have different names because I've, wherever I've traveled, it's always been called the same same uh, thing. Uh, also in Malaysia, it was Hari Raya. So uh, it's a celebration of uh, f- feasting uh, for the end of the month of Ramadan where uh, people go to the mosque for a special um, prayer, uh, f- like uh, f- like eat prayers, like celebration prayers, and there'll be like a speech, and after that um, people celebrate, and it varies, the celebration varies after that quite a lot uh, geographically and culturally, but what is pretty much from my travels and my knowledge is everyone, uh, and from the Sunnah of course, is that in the morning people uh, put clean clothes, most often new clothes if possible, and um, they they eat in the morning. It's very important to eat in the morning to show that that's a day of celebration, not fasting. And then they go to the mosque, do their special prayers, listen to the um, speech, and after that, uh, kids start celebrating, having candy, money, whichever culture they happen to be in. Now, the second one, uh, Eid al-Adha, which in some Islamic cultures is called Tabaski is uh, during the month of Dhul-Hijjah, so it's uh, two and a half months after the celebration of after the end of Ramadan, uh, where once again, uh, people in the morning will have uh, new or clean clothes and will head to the mosques for prayers. Those mornings, uh, 
people don't, the adults will not eat. They go to the mosque, they do their prayers, they listen to the sermon, and that's also called the eat of the sacrifice, whereas it's accustomed to uh, slaughter a lamb for those who can afford it and have the means to. Uh, to slaughter a lamb and then divide it into three uh, for one third should be for the family, one third should be for the poor and needy and one third for the neighbors. So it's uh, also given to charity. It's a very big part of our celebrations is to give charity as well as Eid al-Fitr. We also give uh, Zakat al-Fitr. We give uh, like money or alms to the needy. So that's the day of uh, celebration. People who live in countries where they themselves cannot slaughter, but they do have the means to send money to other countries or to people in need to slaughter for them to be for the meat to be distributed. And uh, that uh, is uh, to celebrate the end of the pilgrimage, the Hajj. And it actually uh, has its roots in the story of Ibrahim, uh, Abraham. Uh, where he uh, God told him to slaughter his son Ismail, but uh, instead, as a test of his faith, and at the end, instead of slaughtering his son, he God gave him a lamb to slaughter. So we also follow because the whole pilgrimage is following the footsteps of Abraham in Mecca. So even those who are not present celebrate in slaughtering. That day is a very big day in Islam, and Abraham, as mentioned earlier, is a very big. Uh, it's like the father. We call him the father of our prophets. So it's a very big celebration, and once again, it differs from country to country, but it has a lot to do with eating and celebrating, meeting family, meeting neighbors, meeting friends, visiting the elderly, visit, giving alms to the poor and like rejoicing, eating amazing food. What I loved about Eid in uh, Malaysia, they have special cookies that they bake in their dishes. And they only bake them, or they only make them uh, during this celebration. It's amazing that, and they give them, they put them in very beautiful decorated jars that they take along when they go and visit because visiting family is a very big part of these celebrations. So they will take these jars and exchange them. And it's amazing being a guest in that country at that time because you get a lot of amazing cookies. So That was one of the things when I was reading uh, Ramadan Around the World to the kids that I nanny, I was like, oh man, all these different foods look great. It's, it's quite amazing. It's quite interesting, even though like we, the beginning of the celebration is pretty much the same around the world but then the end is uh, the principle is the same but the food differs and it's amazing so yeah those are the big big ones and i don't have a favorite i like it i don't know why i always get excited for after ramadan because i've somehow worked more for it because i've been fasting for one month so I've really worked towards it more than Eid Only the time when I was in Hajj, I felt like I worked, but there we don't celebrate it. So it's, um, I don't know, I do have, I shouldn't say I have a favorite, but I feel like I earned uh, Eid Al-Fitr more. Yeah, I think Ikram did a really good job of like telling you about these, these two main uh, holidays that we have. And uh, I think feasting and food is always a focus of a lot of uh, 
you know, holidays around the world. And I, I think even in Judaism, they follow a lunar calendar. So that's something uh, that, that most educators need to keep in mind because, you know, you'll always be like, oh, we should plan for Eid. But last year, Eid was on this date. So it always moves. So I think that's one consideration that educators always need to keep in mind with holidays and also that some students in their classroom may be fasting during Ramadan and just to be sort of sensitive to that idea and what that means for that child. And also, I think, uh, as she said, I think because we fast in Ramadan, we feel like we've earned something at the end of it. And it's funny because uh, I don't know how it is for either of you, but I feel like Ramadan always even towards the end of it when you're really tired and you're exhausted like there's that spurt of energy that you get because it's Eid is coming and I remember on every night before Eid I'm going crazy in the house cooking and making things and you know every family has certain traditions and like she said in Malaysia we have cookies in our family we just um which has probably evolved just in my personal nuclear family but <laughs> I have a set menu and it has to be done and even this year although there was a pandemic and there was you know there was no real visiting of friends and family which I think everyone missed a little bit I still went and made the entire menu because I was like no it's easy we have to celebrate it now so <laughs> I think food is very central to all our celebrations I think also what you were talking about about keeping for you know educators and people like keeping the calendar in mind of you know different different religions besides, you know, yours or, you know, um, Christianity in particular, because it's the, the, right. When I go on my, on my calendar app, it has all the Christian holidays on it. It has no other holidays. And it, and I was humbled a little bit because I, my brain, I have ADHD and I call it parallel thinking where like, I'll know something, but then I don't actively like act on it or think about it when I need to. (laughs) And um, so I knew that there were a lot of Jewish holidays in September. And then I was scheduling the episode with people and I was like, hey, are you available all these days? And they were like, Seth, all of these days are Jewish holidays. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, yes, I should have double checked the calendar, right? And so I think especially for educators too, and people working with kids, it's really, it's really important to think about, uh, you know, that, you know, other people might be like you're saying, like, right, kids might be fasting or kids might be, um, you know, going through different things or having different holidays and um, have different needs based on that. And so I, I think that it's important for folks to think about those things. Well, especially the fasting, if they've got the exam period during that time. Oh my gosh. That's really remember. hard. I love what Ikram said and I love what Sadaf said. Um, my favorite is actually, like, I always think of uh, Edel Fitter which is after Ramadan as more of a local holiday. But when I come to when it comes to Eid al Adha, it takes me right back to Hajj. And once you've made Hajj, you never see Eid al Adha the same afterwards, I find. Because there's like this yearning. Even though Hajj is so hard, <laughs> it's really difficult. But there's this yearning, oh, I wish I was back there. There's something about being on the plain of Arafat. On the plain of Arafat, all the men are in two pieces of cloth white cloth clean white cloth and the women wear we're, we're comfortable we wear whatever we want but um basically we're all there uh we've got like an appointment with god on the 10th of the hijjah i think it's the 10th is the day of arafat and and we're there from uh, zuhr which is the the the, um, the early afternoon prayer until asr we're not allowed to leave and and we we just pray and apparently the hadith i heard of is that god comes down to the lowest heaven 
And he looks out at his believers. They're all gathered there asking for forgiveness, asking for whatever they want. And um, when he created Adam, he said, the, the angels actually asked God, they, it says this in the Quran, that they asked God, why are you going to create someone who makes a lot of trouble when we worship you and we celebrate your praises? And then God told the angels, well, I know what you do not know. And on the day of Arafat, God turns to the angels. He said, look here, see my worshipers? These are my worshipers. And it's kind of like a rebuttal to what the angels said. And the thing about um, when I was uh, there on the day of Arafat, and I'm holding, I'm carrying my hand, holding up my hands in prayer, I came back from there with such a clear purpose in my life, knowing what I had to do. And knowing that, um, I mean, if you fulfill the pilgrimage, and if you do it, if you do it, and it's accepted, it's like you are newborn. And afterwards, when I came across it, I'm not trying to compare Islam to Christianity. But to me, um, Eid al-Adha is like, it's like the opposite of Easter. In Eid al-Adha, we, we, God, he, um, he planted the vision of a sacrifice in Abraham. And Abraham went to his son, Ishmael, his only son at the time, because Isaac wasn't born. Like in the Bible, it's, it's Isaac that's, that they say. But in Islam, it's Ishmael. And so Abraham went to Ishmael and he asked him, he said, what should I do? I have this vision. And of course, it's a prophetic vision. So it's not a normal vision. And he said, what should I do? And, and Ishmael, he, he was so patient. He said, oh, oh, father, do what you are commanded. If God wills, you will find me patient. So Abraham, and it took Ishmael out to the desert, and we believe it's in Mina, this plain that's right outside of Mecca, because Mecca is where Abraham and Ishmael built the Kaaba. They're the ones who actually built the Kaaba to which we face to pray. So about two and a half miles outside of Mecca, Abraham took Ishmael, he laid him down, he tied him up, he put a cloth on it, and he was ready to, 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 to slaughter him. And that's when God himself called out, no, stop, you have fulfilled the vision. And he ransomed uh, Ishmael with a ram. He said, no, instead you, you use this as your sacrifice. And for, for me as a Muslim, what I feel is that it's to say that, no, God does not ask us for human sacrifice. We, it's not necessary. Abraham actually passed the test for us. And all we have to do is we sacrifice a sheep or sometimes it's a share of a cow or, or a different animal. And then we distribute the, the, the meat. It's not the meat that goes to God. It's our piety and it's our willingness to submit ourselves to the will of God. And, and so it's, it, it, it's basically God is telling people, no, it's not necessary. You do not have to sacrifice your children. You don't have to have a human sacrifice. All you have to do is be willing. And when we do this sacrifice every year at Eid, the poor people all over the world benefit because sometimes they, that's the only time they eat meat. And it feeds people, it helps people, and it brings the community together. This is what I've always found with Eid al-Adha. So in some ways, Eid al-Adha has a special, more special place in my heart because it's such a global thing. It's everybody, the whole world is coming together. Uh, as a global entity, well, well, same for Ramadan, but but there's something more unifying I find with Eid al-Adha. It's actually a, a 
it's just beautiful to me. I just wanted to add to that because, um, you know, and, and may Allah grant everyone who has not been to Hajj the ability to go to Hajj because there is that kind of yearning, uh, I mean, that, that people um, want to do that pilgrimage. It is very hard. It is very arduous. But people want to do that. And I think in recent years, I've started trying to learn more about Eid al-Adha. And I think in the last couple of years, I've also started doing the fast uh, that some people do during this time in the month of Dhul-Hajj, just to uh, sort of get into the understanding of what the spirit of that holiday is, which as Roxana so beautifully explained, is about sacrifice and is about your piety. But something else I also learned from just reading about it um, is sort of what she said about how it helps the poor. It helps not just, you know, the, the, the meat that is distributed to the poor, but there's a whole economy around it. People who, um, you know, rear these animals over the years, people who make their money from selling these animals at that time, from people who graze it, from people who food it, you know, feed these animals. None of that money is going to a corporation. All of that money is actually going to people who need it. You know, and poor people and right in their hands, which is just a, a beautiful, like she said, more commun- communal, I guess, way of equity, right? Some sort of e- equitable distribution of wealth, which is so I think uh, as I'm trying to do this, as I try and teach my son or other children about this holiday, like usually, you know, uh, Ramadan gets most of the spotlight, but I think I personally am trying to learn more about it. And I'm finding these beautiful little things about Eid al-Adha, which I'm coming to appreciate now. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Rad Child Podcast. Uh, We have a couple of announcements today. Total transparency, most of them are shameless self-promotion about some other things that I've been doing. But I wanted to let you know in case you're interested in following me other places. Um, So I recently was a guest on the Balancing Cultures podcast, uh, and that episode was all about sort of like transgender 101. So we did a little bit of uh, vocabulary, we talked about questions not to ask a trans person. Um, We talked a little bit about my personal story and then the end was how to talk to kids about gender, which we've covered on here before. But, um, you know, we had a different conversation than we had on this podcast. So just in case anyone's interested, you can find that at Balancing Cultures on any podcatcher of your choice. The second thing is that I was recently a panelist on a uh, webinar hosted by Queer Kid Stuff um, with Linz Amer, who has been a guest on here before on our episode about gender, actually. Uh, we love Linz and the work that they do. Uh, so that webinar was all about um, just educating during a pandemic, and we had um, it was myself as a nanny and through the podcasting kind of education that I do, uh, as well as two other educators, one who works in a preschool and one who does some unschooling um, pandemic pods and things like that. So it was really, really interesting. Uh, and you can check that out by uh, following Queer Kid Stuff. I believe it will be on their website, the recording, if you want to watch that. Uh, and then the final thing is that I also, I've been, I've been very busy lately, y'all. <laughs> 
I had the honor of uh, hosting a webinar about um, two of Penguin Random House's new titles. Um, one is The New Queer Conscience by Adam Eli, and the other one is Beyond the Gender Binary by Alok Vaidmanan. Um, so Adam and Alok um, were both there, and I just asked them some questions, and we had some great conversation. Uh, so if you want to check that out, that is going to be posted on the Kofler Center's website, uh, and I can definitely put that in the show notes when they do post that and I'll also share on social media and things like that. And now it's just time for our regular, regular old announcements. Um, So before we get into social media stuff, uh, just a reminder that if you are interested in the publishing company, A Kid's Book About, if you go to their website, akidsbookabout.com and purchase any of their books using the code RADCHILD on checkout, you can get uh, $5 off, which is awesome. Uh, Honestly, I just purchased about five of their books. They have some really great uh, new ones coming out. They have one about um, how to talk to kids about systematic racism. They have one about voting. Um, They have just so many great titles and I would definitely check them out. Um, So now just for our regular stuff, as you know, you can follow us at Radchild Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to contact us, um, you can do so by emailing radchildpodcast at gmail.com or going to www.radchildpodcast.com under the contact us section. In that section, there's also information and a link to our application for being a guest. We're always looking for guests, so definitely uh, fill that out if you're interested. Um, You can also check out our Rad merch on our website under store or by going to etsy.com and just searching Radchild podcast uh, we have all sorts of cool things like uh, there's lots of buttons there's stickers there's postcards there's all sorts of neat things uh, we also have a digital coloring book that you can get um, so yeah definitely check that out um, and last but of course not least <laughs> um, if you would like to join the ranks of emma kai alex and sarah uh, and help support us financially if you're able uh, you could do so by going to patreon.com forward slash radchild podcast and there you can make a monthly donation as little as a dollar a month honestly every little bit helps because as you know um, most of the podcast comes out of my own pocket Uh, I do it out of love (laughs) Um, not for financial gain but uh, if you're able to help me just make my costs that would really really mean a lot to me Um, so yeah you can uh, do that again by going to patreon.com forward slash ragchild podcast and we have all sorts of really cool perks including bonus content like bloopers which are very silly it's mostly me telling ridiculous anecdotes and you can even get things like personalized children's book recommendations for the children in your life you can get um, care packages sent to you with all sorts of fun goodies and children's books so all sorts of different things definitely check that out Um, and yeah I think that's about it for today Uh, so back to the show do you wish more picture books truly reflected your family's values have you ever thought you found the perfect book but when you got it home it completely missed the mark Shift Bookbox is a picture book subscription service for kids ages 3 to 8, built around themes of social justice and centering diverse characters and creators. Each box features two beautiful picture books as well as expertly crafted discussion guides. We know that families want to engage kids in conversations about social justice topics, and we recognize how challenging it can be to find the right books and to feel supported in having these conversations. We find the books. We provide the prompts. You get both delivered to your door. Subscribe today at shiftbookbox.com and use the code RADCHILD. RADCHILD. All one word. RADCHILD. RADCHILD. For 10% off your first order. Shift Bookbox. Curating little libraries. Cultivating big change. 
let's move on to talking to two kids a little bit. So I'm curious uh, if a kid has ever asked you about your religion and how you responded. Of course, I wear a full hijab. So I cover my um, hair, my neck, and I always wear long dresses with long sleeves. So working in pediatry, you can believe I've had my share of questions from children. Mainly it's, uh, questions have been regarding my um, clothing, like why I wear a scarf, why am I not hot? And uh, especially uh, when the West became very hostile towards Islam, when there was a lot of news, there was the uprising of the extreme right wing in Europe. My working became a bit complicated because children, like all the children, let's say five, six-year-olds, were getting scared of me. Like they were a bit apprehensive. And on top of that, I was there to vaccinate them. So... And that's after asking them to remove their top clothing for me to weigh them and measure them. So already an intimidating situation for a child. And then I'm wearing the so quote unquote scary clothing that they see on TV or they hear people talk about like children were so worried. Not many of them could actually word their questions. I will never forget one mother. She came in with a six-year-old daughter. So I was to do the whole, like, uh, checkup for the daughter and the vaccinations. And at one point, I, I was seeing that the girl was worried. And I also don't like to assume things. So I don't want to always assume it's my appearance because no children at that age, they know they're coming to get vaccinated. So not many of them are worried about my appearance as much as they are about the need I'm going to jab them with so there was one mother that really till today I, I will never forget her she saw that her daughter was anxious and in front of me very calmly asked her like are you surprised that the lady is wearing this clothing and it kind of released because the daughter was surprised and that she opened the window for me to explain to the child why I'm wearing it and it is the situation and I was amazed of the openness and the maturity of that mother to read the situation and put not only her child but me as well as at ease because religion in those type of situation we don't when as healthcare professionals we are there to do our job healthcare professionals we identify as healthcare professionals and we are not there to explain our personal beliefs or lifestyles to anyone and it's not something we purposely uh, bring forward but of course my dressing gives me away wherever I go so it actually allowed me to just tell the girl that yes I'm a Muslim as you see sometimes outside all of us who wear this type of clothing we identify as Muslim and I just explained to her because she asked me why do you wear it and I said it's for others to know that we are Muslims so then I'll know who else is a Muslim and um, then we know that uh, we are automatically friends but we can be friends with everyone but it's just an identifying mark and uh, that kind of eased the situation without me having to go deep into explaining my religion, but also putting everyone at ease. And I just always remember that mother, how he, she like addressed the situation very truly 
and very openly. I, I really appreciated it. But I try, especially when I lived in the West, where I did most of my schooling, most of my work, I tried to play down, not play down, because once again, my appearance will show my Islam, but I never, like, myself came to tell a child about uh, my religion, as it's very touchy topic in the West, especially in Europe at the moment, is very, very touchy. So you have to be very careful not to be accused of pushing Islam to children. So I used to be a bit worried, actually, if a child would ask me of how much I'm able to explain in my capacity as a healthcare professional and in front of the parents, or even if the parents weren't there, but it's just not my... Uh, my position like is I'm not there for that but at the same time like children are curious and you want to make them feel at ease so I used to just uh, explain it as simply as possible and move on to the topic of the day. Yeah I think um, for me this took on (laughs) multiple proportions because as I mentioned during uh, after the after President Trump was elected in the US a lot of uh, my own son was asking me these questions of whether we'd have to leave the country or not. So it became um, sort of a moment of introspection. And at that point, point uh, I was also part of an um, online bookstore where we were focusing on South Asian children's literature. And, and so this got me thinking in terms of aspects of Muslim children's literature. Uh, and therefore, um, we brainstormed a couple of ideas and uh, we got in touch even with Roxana Khan at that Point, and she was very, um, we were very grateful to have her be a part of this response, which was uh, called the Counter Islamophobia Two Stories campaign, which we launched in January of 2017, where we were just trying to sort of address this idea that both you and Ikram are talking about in terms of how do we just give kids good information about Muslims, right? Because there's so much negative stereotyping and just negative images that they see all around them through. Um, you know, the media or, you know, just people's own perceptions, their families, etc. So how do we change that? How do we flip that narrative? And so that's essentially what our counter-Islamophobia through stories campaign was. And we were able to focus it on a lot of stories on and about Muslims that were not that were not religion focused, that were just stories with <laughs> with with characters who happen to be Muslim who what? are actually living their lives. I know. <laughs> well, you have a veteran with you right now. Rosana Khan has written these kinds of stories, which are so wonderful. And actually, I mean, I, I hate saying this, but like I have to say it to bring home the point is that they bring out the humanity of Muslims people because it's horrible to say but you know people don't consider um you know most muslims human like the way that we are portrayed in the media or the way that our values are sort of misrepresented it's just that people don't see us Uh, there's always this othering of muslims so it was very important for us to try and change that kind of idea and so through kitab world we did this particular uh, campaign which finally got also uh, over the course of the years we were able to present it at different educator conferences and we were actually able to convert that into a book called Muslims and Story. From that one question that my son asked me, it kind of spurred a lot of things and a lot of responses that I tried to try to call together in a way that was meaningful and helpful to to parents and I mean 
let's face it, we're all homeschooling our kids now, so we might as well have the resources to do this right. I just really liked what Sadaf was saying because I realized, especially in Europe, a lot of Muslims try to hide because of all the negative uh, information, all the negatives that was going on. So I myself took the different route of being very open and very, how to say, like visually Muslim. Like I never downplayed it uh, because, of course, it's a personal conviction why I dress the way I do. But also to show that you can be a professional, you can be in everyday life, you can be a productive member of the society and still be Muslim. And I realized what, like, Sadaf reminded me of was how, like, colleagues would come to me during break, lunch break and be like, oh, Ikram, like, I like the way you dress. Like, I've never seen a Muslim dress, like, so color coordinated. You dress so fashionable. And I would tell them that, no, we all do. It's just you've never taken the time to see the person and look at them the way you look at me. Now you've seen me work, you've seen me daily for some time, you have taken the time to see me as a person. That's why you're realizing that I'm dressing this way. But if you look at us, you will see that most of us, we actually like dressing up. We do it moderately, but we we do follow like certain trends and we do like to dress up. It's just we do it according to certain sets of values, which are different from yours. But you noticed mine because we work together. But if you look around, you'll notice it's not just me. But people, I realized like adults used to make like me to be like a unicorn. Like I'm the only one who's like so highly qualified or I'm the only one who dresses so nicely. I'm like, no, I'm not just open your eyes and look around, makes me realize that if adults are so blind to people they live around, how are we expecting children to know better? So that's why I always went against the whole playing it down, going with the flow, being apologetic. I've always took the different route, like, especially when I travel, like I'm very, (laughs) I have, I've always made a point that when I take a plane, I wear always all black from head to toe, just to make a point. And of course, I'm always randomly selected for all the extra security checks and everything. But I always make a point of dressing like the most conservative possible when I travel, which I don't necessarily do like. Of course, I wear full hijab, but I like wearing different colors and different styles. But uh, when I travel, I actually wear like the scariest clothes, quote unquote, as possible, just to like fight the narrative uh, people have of me. And um, I've noticed like sometimes like even children in public transport will say like, oh, mommy, look like she has a nice skirt. And you'd see the mother like turn your child away, like don't look like it's not nice or like being so negative about it. I've, I've done thousands of school presentations. So, yep, I've had kids ask me about my religion. Um, in fact, one time, I think the weirdest question was, are you a woman or a man? 
And because I do wear hijab as well. Yeah, well, well, I wear hijab and uh, and I said, well, what do you think? And they said, I don't know. And I said, okay, I'm a woman because I mean, that's how I identify. But I think that what happened with me, what I noticed was when it kind of goes back to some of what Ikram was saying, that people don't expect uh, especially Muslim women, to be well-spoken and articulate. And the thing is, as an author and a storyteller, I am well-spoken, alhamdulillah, and articulate. So what happened, What I, what I, I, because I wear hijab, I thought, well, it's obvious I'm Muslim, but apparently not, because many times I would be doing my storytelling, I would start my presentation. Oftentimes, I found that the presentation was just as equally important for the teachers because it dispels a lot of their stereotypes types as well. So I'd be doing my presentation and I'd have the kids laughing. I'd have the the teachers engaged laughing with some of the stories I tell. Some of them are very funny. And then at the end, the kids would ask me, are you Muslim? Because I'm wearing And then I thought, well, yeah, duh, I'm Muslim. Then I thought, no, you know what? They're, they're not used to a funny Muslim. So I learned to actually weave it into the presentation at the beginning that I am a Muslim so that they know and then they can experience the humor, the, the entertainment, the edutainment in, in a way that is more empowering. So that's what I learned to do with that. And in terms of any question that a kid asks me, I just believe in answering honestly. That's all I do. I just tell them the truth. And within their understanding, and it works. You know, I'm just being respectful and everything. Yeah, I feel basically what we we sort of, you know, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, right? How to answer kids' questions. And, um, you know, we're always like honesty is just like the number one, like honesty and age appropriateness, right? And of course, like, again, like we were saying, it can get tricky depending on the circumstance of how much you can say, right? Like there was um, a good example of this is when I had somebody on who happened to teach Hebrew school. And um, one of the kids during Hebrew school asked what a dildo was. I know what the answer to that question is, but I don't know if your parents want you coming home from Hebrew school with the answer to that question, right? (laughs) So, you know, there there are... um, I think sometimes circumstances where uh, that could get tricky, but most of the time, I think honestly and age appropriate answers are good. So we sort of touched on this a little bit, but, and this will obviously depend on, you know, your different interactions with kids, but I'm curious if you, you ever struggle with sort of wanting to share parts of your religion with kids or answer those kinds of questions, but feeling like the context is inappropriate, like we were talking about before, like maybe in uh, setting Ikram where you're, you know, the professional or Roxana when you're, you know, leading, um, you know, you're uh, visiting a school or something like that. Well, for me personally, like when I'm working, I feel like already my presence as a hijabi in the workforce is already like breaking their stereotypes. So I'm already doing my job at that front. But what uh, frustrates me the most is uh, I have one example, but this has happened so many times over the years is, for example, one time I was sitting in a public bus uh, in Finland, actually. There was a father and a son sitting behind me. And these people are French and they're speaking in French, which is my mother tongue. And of course, when I feel and, and I'm in full hijab, they are, of course, not aware of the situation. But now the child is asking the father very legitimate questions about me, my dressing and Islam. And I can hear the father in my mother tongue spitting 
lies, prejudice, hate to this child and getting it all wrong. And I was boiling, I was boiling. I was so frustrated because I'm in a public bus in a different country. I cannot turn around and tell this father off in front of his child and change the narrative. Mostly because no matter what I say, the father will not listen because he's clearly an Islamophobe. He's clearly racist. There's nothing I can do with my words to change his mind. I broke my heart to hear an innocent child being fed lies in front of me in my mother tongue. It was the most frustrating bus ride I can remember because I had to listen to the whole rhetoric the whole time. And it really, it was frustrating in a personal level because it was all lies and I felt like I could have answered and counter-argued every point he made. But knowing that these type of people are not willing to change their minds or to even learn. Also, like this poor child, like he, I felt like he left that bus with so much misinformation and I will never know whether that will be corrected in his life. And those are the situations when you are publicly targeted by a parent to give false information to the child. It breaks my heart because you are, for me, it's like robbing the child of their innocence. And I feel like the children do have legitimate questions, but I just don't agree with the parents' answers. But like there's nothing getting into a fight with their parents in front of the children will definitely not help <laughs> my narrative yeah. oh, of gosh. Muslims being tolerant and educated and not oppressed and not dangerous. It's it's so frustrating frustrating, especially like I've been in circumstances like this where people did not know I was trans and we're talking and we're like saying transphobic things and you know. Um when you're in a situation where like people are talking about you in front of you and they're like talking you know, and they're misinforming other people and you're just like No, like you're saying internally and there's nothing you can do. Like you could talk, but it's not going to help the child in this Yeah. And those kinds of people don't want to listen. Like you are, you're totally right. Yeah, I was just going to say, but I mean, that sort of just brings home the point that certain amount of prejudice and certain amount of bigotry is learned, right? Like children are naturally curious and they do ask these questions, but it's up to the adults to provide them with, you know, uh, the best responses. And that doesn't always happen, right? Like I have the opposite situation from someone like Ikram, where I don't wear a hijab. So people don't assume I'm Muslim. So they say the most Islamophobic things in front of me. But, you know, here's the thing. I mean, I've I don't know how much you guys know about. So I, I have, uh, uh, I'm of Indian heritage. So I grew up in India and around Indian communities. And I don't know if you know about the situation in India right now, where there's such a right wing movement towards, um, you know, uh, lynching of Muslims and, and taking away their democratic rights and all of that. So it, when I was growing up, it's always been, it, I mean, to some extent, I feel like it's just come out in the open a lot more. It's always been there. But um, so now you're familiar with terms like microaggressions, right? Like growing up, you don't know what a microaggression is. So, so you just you just find ways to formulate your own responses. And for me, that response was because people would do that to get a rise out of you. 
people would. Um, and, uh, you know, in mostly in India is this way of pitting India and Pakistan all the time. I'm sure Ruxana must be familiar with these kind of situations where they're always sort of, you know, especially if there's a cricket match and there's India and Pakistan, like all eyes are on you. Like, who are you supporting? Who are you defending? Like, you, as Indian Muslims, you're always constantly asked to put your patriotism wear it on your sleeve, show it out loud, speak it out, you know. And people are constantly needling you to get a rise out of you. And I might be completely digressing from what we're talking about. But, you know, you know, so so my response has usually been to have no response, you know. Uh, as a child, my response was to have no response. But now as an adult, when people are saying these things to me, I can take them to task, right? Like as uh, Ikram said, that she knew how to refute everything that man was saying. So you can do that with an adult. What do you do with a child? How do you try and um, say the right things to a child? And sometimes as both you and uh, Ruksana had this conversation about, you know, uh, children being curious and asking you about the hijab or whether you are Muslim or whether you are, uh, you know, trans or whatever, you can give them an age-appropriate response. And sometimes what we've found is in working with educators and teachers through using children's books, sometimes they just need that visual of a woman in a scarf. And they're like, what is that? And you say, oh, that's that's called a hijab that women covered, some Muslim women used to cover their hair. And they're like, okay. And they move on to something else. And, you know, I mean, at that point, maybe to a kindergartner, that's, that's all the information they need, you know? And then you make something that's unfamiliar to them more familiar. And therefore, the child is not approaching it with sort of a prejudiced lens of it's an object of oppression or whatever. People like to talk about it in that way. So I think the the, the best service we can do to children that we are engaged with or to, to, I think, also just educators, teachers and librarians and even parents is to just give them these kinds of resources where you're showing a certain amount of visual diversity so they get to see what a Muslim household looks like, what pe- women in hijab look like, what, you know, and they get to un- understand that, you know, certain things might be different, but certain things are also the same. So I think the universality of our stories is a very important aspect to try and showcase to kids at as much of an early age as possible so that they come to it with their own set of understanding rather than being fed, as Ikram clearly pointed out, prejudiced ideas from adults. I think that representation, especially in, in children's books and, you know, those that kind of media is so important across the board, right? About, you know, every every kind of person and every kind of ability and every color and every, you know, creed. And um, because like you were saying, then it's not, I just, I just always think about when I was a little kid, I loved Barney, uh, the show Barney, you know, the purple dinosaur. And, um, I was, you know, when I was two, it was like my, my favorite thing. And there was a little black girl on Barney at the time, you know, we had like one of every, there was one Asian, one and one black, because that was what we did in the nineties. That's what we thought inclusion meant. And there was one little black girl on Bar- Barney and I don't remember her name, but we're just going to call her Sasha. And, uh, I, we were at the beach and I saw a little black girl and I went, mommy, look at Sasha. Like that was the only black girl I had ever seen. Right. Like, I, and I was just like, there's only, there must only be one. And so I think it's so important to have those kinds of resources and be showing kids different kinds of people, especially like if you live in a kind of a homogenous community and they're not seeing those people in real life, right? I think it's so important. And even if even if you are, right, it's so important to just show kids that different kinds of people exist. 
um, and that it's okay to ask questions, right, um, in, in appropriate ways. <laughs> but yeah, I think like we were talking about, like when kids are asking questions, they're generally asking from curiosity. They're not asking to be mean, uh, sometimes when they're older, maybe. But anyway, Roxana, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, actually, I do. Um, what I find the best thing is if it, it, it's there's a difference between proselytizing and giving information. So when I'm when I'm doing a presentation, I'm, I might I might be talking about the creative process, about how stories originate and stuff like that. I'm writing, I'm speaking as an author and I'm speaking as a presenter, but I will use culturally appropriate examples of my own my own faith because one of the things about writing is write what you know and I'm and and one of the the things that makes my books more marketable actually is the fact that I am representing a marginalized community telling stories from our perspective to to increase understanding between cultures so like what what are the, one of the things i one of my most famous uh, stories that i tell and it, it, it's it's actually called fudger and it's about the prayer and it's actually about a kid who really tries hard because this is a no-no he tries really hard not to fart while he's praying his fudger prayer. And the fudger prayer is the first prayer in the day. And you can't fart when you're praying because it's like rude. You're talking to God and you can he knows if you're farting. And it it's it, like he the, the boy spends most of the the prayer trying to suppress this fart. And it's hilarious. Now I'm not uh, preaching to the kids that they should be like this, but they can all appreciate what it feels like to try to suppress a fart because everybody knows that. So it becomes one of those universal stories. I'm also talking about how it led me into my writing career. So it's an appropriate way to share this anecdote with kids. Not only do I talk about the creative process, I'm talking about how the story develops and how I'm, I'm writing what I know. So it, it's not coming from a proselytizing position, but they do learn about a little bit about the prayer. They know, hey, Muslims pray. And one of the prayer times is before is before sunrise at dawn so so it's a, it's a it's an it's an appropriate way to share it i'm not trying to preach or convert anyone for goodness sakes not at all but what i'm doing is is increasing the understanding in a funny uh friendly a non-judgmental non-threatening kind of a way and it's not hard to do that um and it all comes down again to being honest and being human yeah, like if we can, if we can uh, share our common humanity, and I don't think there's anything more human than farting, really. That's something everybody does. Amazing. I'm moving on to our next question. We were talking, we talked a little bit about um, hijab, but I'm curious if a kid, uh, you know, notices someone wear, wearing a visual signifier that they're Muslim like a hijab, um, you know, how, how can we respond? And, you know, what are some other, are there other visual signifiers um, of Islam and what? What is their significance? Well, of course, hijab, I think, is the most famous one and the most uh, discussed one. And of course, there's the niqab, which is also even more infamous, where a woman will cover her face all except the eyes. So, Except we are all niqabis now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a meme going around about that, uh, in, at least in my circles, where like, the, everyone is learning how to put mask and there's a niqab it goes like haha so there's the niqab and uh, for 
some men, but then I feel it's very cultural, but different cultures, Muslim men do have different attires that uh, they follow, but they also have a similar, like, I think it's called a kippah, what the Jewish wear, a small skull cap. So Muslims have a kufi that is a bit bigger, that covers the whole head. But it's not a hat, but it's a kufi. So that's, but it's not um, something that men have to wear or that all men wear. But anyone wearing it is Muslim. Except I saw there was uh, some years back, there was, I don't know what movement, what fashion brand brought it. So men started, like even women started wearing something very similar to it which confused me so much. <laughs> I don't know if you had it like across the Atlantic, but in the Nordic countries, they started having, it looked exactly like a kufi, but everyone was wearing it. It was so confusing. I'm like, who came up with this? Why are they all wearing it? And then I didn't want my sons wearing it because then it will get confused with a fashion statement. And it was very complicated. Didn't something similar happen with the Palestinian scarf? Yeah, if I yes, But that's not religious, though. It's cultural. Yeah, that was not religious. But uh, I, was, uh, I think um, that goes into like appropriation of <laughs> cultural um, artifacts and things like that. Yeah, I think the most uh, like visible part of Islam really is uh, the women's uh, clothing like dresses and the hijab in all its glorious forms and the jibabs and hubs. Well, there's also men with beards. Men are supposed, Islamically, a man is supposed to have a beard. But again, you you find some women wear hijab, some women don't. Some men shave their beards, some men don't. Also, you, sometimes you'll find like a kurta, uh, like a long tunic, uh, it, it for some Muslims, this is like the diversity again. Some of them feel that this is appropriate and that it's actually part of their, um, I don't know, uh, their their practice of Islam. I've seen uh, like I know some, there's a a group I I think in India called the Tablik group. They have their beards a certain length and they walk around with the kufis, those uh, kind of a skull cap, and they also wear like a long robe, and then they feel like this is important to them. But yeah, it's more cultural. Like those are like like for them, it's serious, but like it's not something that you'll find across all cultures. You know, um, in terms of how we can respond, I don't know, just respect it. Hey, that's what they want to wear. Let them wear it, you know, to each their own, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. But isn't that, um, I don't know, coming from India where people wear all, all sorts of different kinds of clothes, more traditional, more, you know, Western kinds of clothes. Like we've always just sort of been okay with people wearing whatever they want to wear. I've only noticed that in the West, people really make a big deal about how people dress differently and like there's this sort of almost like a need to conform to to what everyone is wearing i think a lot of westerners are deep down insecure they mm-hmm. they believe so much in their own superiority of what they wear they it bothers them no end to see other people dressing in other ways <laughs> um i think you do people, know that pantaloons came from like yeah, Arabia or yeah. <laughs> well, the, i mean the thing is like they can't understand how come you're not copying us and the thing is that some people are secure in their own identity and they don't need to copy you and they don't want to copy you. 
they want to dress the way they want to dress and they're comfortable. And I mean, when I started writing, I actually started, I, I tried to fit in. I would wear my hijab, but then I would wear short, uh, like, like tops and, and pants, but I was always pulling down my top to cover my butt and all that kind of stuff. I felt very uncomfortable. And then I thought, you know what, I'm going to stick out anyways, because I'm going to wear hijab. I'm going to stick out. I might as well wear what's comfortable. And as soon as I started doing that, I wear my shavar kameez, and I find that that's the most comfortable. I don't necessarily wear the Pakistani styles and their, their colors, like they'll mix fuchsia and green or fuchsia and mustard color. <laughs> And it's like really garish sometimes. I will wear more subdued tones and like fancy fancy hijabs and stuff. Um, so I've kind of adopted a style that is a little bit more Western in terms of a suit of clothes. So I'm not like sticking out like a sore thumb, sore thumb but I am comfortable in who I am. And if other people find that problematic, and that's their problem, they're probably not the kind of people who would be my people anyways, you know. That is exactly how I feel. I'm like, if people, when I, so I was always very um, eccentric. So as a, as a kid, I would literally show up to high school in like costumes, because that's what I wanted to wear. My parents were very nice, and they would let me wear whatever I wanted. I just remember like thinking of it as a way to weed out people who would be who were like not nice people. I was like, you know what? If people are going to judge me because of what I'm wearing, then like I don't want to be friends with them. So uh, sir, last question before we uh, start to wrap things up, but I'm curious um, for folks who don't practice Islam, you know, how are some ways that we can uh, respectfully teach the kids in our lives about it? One way is what we've kind of discussed all along is uh, use books that have representation, not necessarily about Islam, but just any type of normal books that have representation of all types of children and people and religions. But as well, what I wish more parents would do is when a child asks you a question, just say you don't know. Just say, let's find out. It's not a big deal. Just say, I don't know. Let's ask. Also, another way I feel like, especially in the West, I don't know other countries, but like in Europe, parents were so scared when their children would befriend my children. Like, they would be so scared of it. And like, I'll be like, we can have playdates. We can like, we can do things like we can go and pick berries in the woods together at the same time instead of like avoiding the times where they all go to the park together. Like just if a child naturally makes friends with a Muslim child, don't be afraid to ask them, invite them to parks or to play dates or ask if it's okay for them to share something together. Like don't be the wall between the children and their friends. Because I find that often, oftentimes, like children are just fine, but it's the parents who be so scared, or like teach. Like I had a child, uh, coincidentally Indian child, who came, was in my son's class, and came and tell him like Muslims are his enemies. My child, he's seven. He came home is like, why am I his enemy? And like, of course, I was very much aware of what was happening in India and probably what the child had heard and what he was taught. But I had to go all the way to the principal to talk about this for them to settle it with that family and everything. And initially, what had happened is the child had been friends with my child. And the parents got so scared 
of I don't know what of the child becoming Muslim all of a sudden because they play football together that they had to intervene. And it's so ridiculous. Like we should learn to respect each other's differences and be fine with it. Just as I as a Muslim, I'm fine with another person being Jewish or Hindu or Sikh. Just the same I expect from others that we are fine being Muslims and our children can still play football together, be in the same class, and it doesn't need to be a problem. It really doesn't need to be a problem. Yeah, I just wish parents would be more conscious of their limits in their knowledge and accept that they can find things out with their children and embrace their children's curiosity and take it as an opportunity for them to learn something new as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think when it is something that's like Googleable, like just say you don't know and Google it or talk to someone if you know someone, right, if you, who, you know, um, can answer those questions and absolutely get a person as a resource, right? Of course, ask them if they are okay answering those questions first. But yeah, I think that it's, you know, so it's also like a good practice of like humbling ourselves to like also teach kids that like, Adults don't know everything. Like, we don't. Uh, spoilers, like, we don't know everything. As grown-ups, sometimes we get into this space where we feel like we have to know everything. We have to come off like we know everything. And I think it's actually, like, a nice experience to say, like, you know what? I don't know this. Let's look it up together, right? Or let's find out together. I'm sorry that you had to go through that, Ikram. But uh, honestly, I can't say I'm surprised uh, just coming from that kind of culture and knowing the kind of prejudices that people have. This is, like... like all of us have been saying, I think diversity and representation uh, is an important way to sort of teach children about this. But also, I think, uh, I really think you have to start with the adults in the room. <laughs> you have to start with the educators. You have to start with the teachers. Because if they're not going to, and and I don't know about um, uh, the others, but the amount of students, Muslim students, who have to deal with teacher bias in a classroom, teachers making statements about Islam, about Muslims, towel heads, terrorists, when are you going to blow things up? You know, coming from a, a teacher is is a different, you know, it's coming from a person of authority. As a child, you don't know whether you can question that, whether you can confronted whether you can what can you say to it uh growing up myself I've had I you know I could stand up to to you know my peers but I I would get bullied by my teachers how do I do you know how how I didn't have the language to deal with things at that age I still don't maybe at times so I think really it's really about educating the adults and giving them different ways to look at Muslims, different stories, different narratives, different ways of being, some of which we are all doing in our daily lives just by Ikram going to work as a medical professional, you know, and people seeing her out there. Um, Ruksana's stories that are, you know, that are just showing you the universality of Muslim experiences along with everybody else's. So I think some of that is just by what we do, but um, I think it really has to start with uh, educating the adults. In terms of what some ways that people who don't practice Islam can respectfully teach the kids in their lives about it. I mean, I'd, I'd like to go back to what like Sadaf's work. Sadaf uh, has uh, uh, created a list of approved sources that you can use in your classroom. Isn't that true, Sadaf, right? Yeah, I mean, I can talk about it later if you want, but yeah, it's, it's an but, entire book which has... Yeah, like, like that... Like, Use resources that are approved by the group that you're talking about. 
Like so, so Sarah is from the Muslim, you know. So she's she knows what is accurate in terms of information because the problem is the first time you give uh, if you're not Muslim and the first time you're giving children information, it could be the wrong information. It could be incorrect. And the thing is that might stick in their head and they might never never know to to find out better. You know, so so try to make sure that your sources are correct and not correct according to what other people think Muslims are, but according to what Muslims know themselves and let them speak for themselves. I mean, of course, again, again, there's a lot of diversity in the community, but we try to be respectful of that diversity and say, well, yes, it's not a monolithic community, but at the same time, these are the basic uh, things. And with set of putting together that resource for educators, which is so valuable, it, 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 it lists books and, and materials and resources that they can use to share. And these are not, uh, these are not proselytizing books. These are not books that are trying to convert the kids, okay? It's just information books that will let them know about other citizens of the globe and how they live and what they think and what they believe. Or even like for me as a nanny, so um, every week I have a theme with the kids. So like this week it's fall and like one day we're going to do like pumpkin picking and one day we're, we're going to go to, you know, pretend play, but like we're going to go to an apple orchard and we're, you know, one day's leaves or whatever. So I, I'm very, I like themes. And so I often will um, teach them uh, about other holidays around the world, um, different kinds of holidays and during December, for example, right, we uh, one week will be Christmas, one week will be Kwanzaa, one week will be Hanukkah. We'll learn a little bit about each one uh, without without necessarily um, talking about the religious aspects of it, but more how do people celebrate it, right? What is it all about? And so I, with the kids this year, like we did Ramadan, and I, you could tell this from getting to know me, I love learning about things. Um, so I, I got a kick out of learning about Ramadan. Um, and then I did, you know, and to, to my, right, things from my understanding, I didn't teach them about, right, the religious, they're two, they wouldn't have cared anyway. But, you know, we, like, we did activities that had to do with the moon, and we did activities, we, I found, like, a, like, a Ramadan, like, matching game, and we did that, and I, I made out of cardboard, I made this mosque, and I put all the activities around this little mosque, and, you know, we just learned a little bit about it in a way that uh, I sort of used the knowledge that I had without, uh, you know, we read some books and things like that, and, um, so I think, I think that it, you know, it felt really easy. Also, just for the record, that mosque was their favorite thing I ever built. I've made other things out of cardboard. They could care less. They loved it. The, the parents made me leave it there for a whole week. They were obsessed with it. But anyway, so I think that there are, you know, little ways that we can um, just introduce kids to different things and different experiences that can really, you know, be helpful and teach them teach them all sorts of about different sorts of people and different sorts of things so as we're uh, as we're winding down um my last question before our sort of like outro questions is i'm curious you know if you could break down and i know it's hard to pick just one but if you could break down one stereotype about islam what would it be yeah this was a tough one because as you said there's so many and I feel like starting from A and ending at Z, like, because I actually um, used to give uh, tours to school classes of a mosque and explain. And it was, I did that for a few years. It was amazing. So there's so many. What's actually, when I was working in academia uh, for my master's at the university level, what I would like to break 
would be that a Muslim woman can respect her religion and still be in academia, can still be highly qualified, highly educated, that our religion is not against education, rather it's the exact opposite. And Muslim women are known, like historically, very advanced in education, like the first uh, uh, woman who made um, university in Morocco was a Muslim woman. So there's these historic things like about Muslim women being active in the academia. Uh, but still, when I was in Sweden, like the fact that I would still wear my hijab and be giving lectures, doing my master's, doing my thesis, it was very difficult for people to like combine the fact that I'm a hijabi Muslima defending my thesis. Like it was, and it was in Ramadan as well. So it. I think that would be the one that maybe touches me the most is that just a piece of cloth in my head does not mean I'm not equally capable with those who don't wear it. And clothes are just clothes. It's my identity. It's my way of worshiping my Lord. But that doesn't take away from my brain capacity in any way. And I can just do the work just the same as anyone else, given the chance. Absolutely. If I had one stereotype to break down, not so much about um, Islam, it would just be about Muslims that were not just a monolith. I think the one stereotype that I would break down is that there are a lot of diverse Muslims all over the world. We're not a monolith. Not everyone thinks the same thing. For God's sakes, we can't even agree on how to brew chai. For uh, So there is no agreeing on anything else. We're really diverse. We're really very unique and different. So I think to understand that there's a diversity within Islam and within the Muslim community is sort of something that I would love to to sort of put out there into the world. There's books that I've written that would really destroy the stereotypes about Islam, especially the one that there's a stereotype about Muslims that were not funny. And um, and I love humor. So like in terms of, I I would say go out and read uh, some of the books uh, about Islam and Muslims. Like there's there's Once Upon an Eid, which is a collection of Eid stories from around the world. But it's more for, I would say, junior students, uh, junior to mid-grade, like to mid, what's, grade six and seven, eight, even up to there. And it's it's a collection of, of uh, stories from all around the world, from a div- the diversity of Muslims that really breaks apart any stereotypes you can imagine. Then there's also my book, Muslim Child, which is almost like a primer on Islam. And it starts with the whole assum- assumption that Muslims are brown um, and that they're poor and that they're this and they're that. So in the, in the, in the poem, Muslim Child, I start out with a uh, Muslim child, a child of peace, child of war. Uh, from a far off distant shore, what do your black eyes see? And then I answer that from the Muslim child's perspective, that my eyes are not only black, sometimes they're blue, green, everything like that. And it comes down to the fact, at the end of it, the Muslim child says, like, um, and then the, 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 the reader says, well, Muslim child, child of peace, what do your bright eyes see? And he said, and the Muslim child says, I see that we're each a piece of the puzzle of humanity. I'll try to understand you if you try to understand me. And then I wrote the stories 
Um, and the Fudger story about the farting boy is the first one because, again, you know, it's about prayer, but it's also about how we we are human. We're like everybody else. And it, it breaks the stereotype of not being funny. So I included all of the stories around the five pillars, and it's basically, basically been called a primer of Islam. And yeah, so like, if you go, if you want to break a lot of your stereotypes, read Muslim literature, especially children's literature. There's a lot of really good books out there. Yeah. Um, and that, that sort of leads into my, my next question, which is, do you have, and you can add to this, if, Roxana, if you have anything else when it gets to you, but um, do you have any uh, resources about Islam for kids or adults, whether it's books, TV shows, websites, toys, anything you can think of that's a good resource? Personally, like I, the ones I know are targeted directly at Muslim kids. My favorite, or my son's favorite, has been the power of salah, or the power of prayer, and he even reads it to his younger brothers because they think it's hilarious and it's funny, and it actually made him more serious about the timings of prayers, which was amazing. So I love that book because of the way my son reacted to it. Uh, my own kid's favorite, which goes back to uh, what Sadaf was saying in the beginning, I have the stories of the prophets, like aimed at uh, four or five-year-olds, where which is our bed, bed, part of our bedtime routine. So they choose a prophet and I read it to them and they all have their favorite story. And that's what I read to them uh, every night which is like a learning opportunity for them and also a way for them to draw closer to their religion and their understanding and like increase their love for all of their prophets. So, and it's very nicely illustrated as well. And it has like these little questions and ways to like, the book talks to the child directly. So I really like that book. Yeah, I would uh, actually, because of um, all the conversations that we've had and these, ideas that were, you know, swimming in my head um, after doing the counter-Islamophobia Two Stories project, we actually, me and my co-author, we wrote it as a book called Muslims in Story. And it's a great resource for educators, teachers, parents, librarians, because um, it does two things. It does one, which is to give context about Muslims in the U.S., because a lot of people believe that we just didn't exist uh, back then. But uh, I think what we do is context building about Muslims in the U.S., uh, ideas about Islamophobia and using um, Muslim children's literature as an agent of social change. And um, the second part of the book essentially works to uh, on four book lists, which have a total of, I think, around 200 plus books that are on and about Muslims that have been vetted by us which include ideas for discussions or other book pairings or other film pairings that'll help expand the conversation uh, to learn more about Muslims and sort of, again, flip that narrative and tell more positive stories and hopefully build bridges between communities. That's amazing. Roxana, do you have anything else to add to that? Or are you? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, here's a bit of shameless plugging. I also have a website and I have a YouTube channel. Um, and the YouTube channel, what I tried to do with the YouTube channel is create uh, create videos, not just about my books, but about other books that I recommend and um, and also about like that go into 
a little bit more depth in terms of the thinking process. I, I wanted to, especially with the pandemic, I wanted to create resources for a lot of parents who are homeschooling their kids. And I even went through one of the books that I wrote called Many Windows. And I wrote this book with two of my friends. One is Aliza Carbone, who's Christian, and then uh, Uma Krishnaswamy, who's Hindu. And what we wanted to do was make a collection of uh, stories that about our religious celebrations that really show how people can be friends despite their religious differences. And I used basketball because it's such a cool sport, but I used basketball as an undercurrent of what these kids have in common because sports are neutral. So it has actually a, a, a story arc through the whole collection of short stories. There's these six kids from five different backgrounds. And I actually made the story arc and the story arc really works. Like if you read all of the stories together, like I mean, each one stands on its own. There's a story about um, Buddha's birthday. There's a story about Hanukkah. Uh, I wrote that one and I wrote that, the, the Hanukkah story. And then there's a story about Diwali and there's a story about Eid. And there's a story about, I wrote the Eid one as well. And then there's a story about Christmas. And then there's a last story that kind of ties everything together. And if you read through all of them, you'll see how, this really illustrates an idealistic community where everyone respects one another and they all get along. So, and I call it many windows. Uh, it's basically six kids, five faiths, one community. And at the very end of it, we included nonfiction pieces about the religious celebrations, the Hanukkah, Hanukkah, Buddha's birthday, all of the different religious celebrations so that people could come away with a greater understanding. We couldn't do all of the, 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 the different uh, faiths in the world but we we tackled the three well these five major ones Buddha, buddhism islam christianity hinduism and judaism so we did these five and um it's just a testament to how we're working towards really bringing people together through their intersectionality, through their common values and goals into making it a more peaceful and and a wholesome world oh and my youtube channel is ms rixana khan yeah, my website is rixanacon.com. And on the website, I even have articles and all kinds of stuff, all kinds of resources, teacher's guides for all my books, because uh, my books go from picture books all the way to young adult novels. And my books have garnered a total of about 42 different awards and uh, accolades you know, nominations, all that kind of stuff. And they've been published in many different countries. Yeah, so I like those are the books that, I, and I'm working on more books. But then the YouTube channel also has folk tales that are funny and poignant and just great um, multicultural things that kids can watch. Plus it has my Big Red Lollipop story. My Big Red Lollipop is my most famous book. Um, it won both awards in America for Best Picture Book Story. And it was chosen by the New York Public Library as one of the 100 greatest children's books in the last 100 years. It's it's really funny, and a lot of people don't realize it, but the bad guy, Sana, is actually me, the author. Okay, Rook Sana, get it? Um, I took off the Rook, and I'm actually Sana in the story. <laughs> so I'm actually in this story. It's based on a true story, and I really was that naughty. But I did learn from it, and I created a learn. I actually wrote the story from my older sister's perspective after the editor said that she was a more sympathetic character. <laughs> <laughs> the episode following this, our next um, Way to Go, Room to Grow episode, we'll be talk I'll be talking about 
about all the sort of books that I recommend. But one thing that I do want to recommend is on Instagram, I follow Muslim Mommy Blog. And uh, she is absolutely great. Has like every single day, she has a new kids book. I like I can't believe how many how many books she reviews. It's wild. But she has all great books. Um, and some of them, you know, she does, she does full reviews. So you'll be able to tell, you know, if they're more appropriate for folks who, uh, like you, like you were saying, Ikram, maybe it's a book that makes more sense if you uh, are Muslim, um, as opposed to some of them that are more um, accessible to, to folks who maybe uh, don't practice. Okay, so uh, as we're uh, winding down, uh, my last question is just, uh, if you have any personal projects or work that you'd like to plug and where can people find you on the internet if you would like to be found on the internet <laughs> i don't have any project i'm on linkedin and the ikram amio and that's about it like i i'm there <laughs> <laughs> no because you're, you're in the medical field you're doing yeah, you're doing important yeah. work yeah, so if um, people want more information about the Counter-Islamophobia Through Stories project or Muslims in Story, the book, they can go to lanternreads.org. Um, I'm also sort of fingers crossed here, but I've written a couple of children's books that might see the light of day. Oh, if we all oh, see the light of day, thank you. If we all see the light of day beyond 2020, then perhaps my books will see the light of day then. <laughs> so... So um, if you follow me on uh, uh, lanternreads.org, occasionally post uh, reviews and more information about projects. There. Amazing. And so, Roxana, I don't know if you have anything else to add. I have a picture book coming out within the next year, I think. It's a folktale that is dear, near and dear to my heart called The Clever Wife. And I haven't seen the illustrations, but I know the artist. She's from the UK. She actually worked in the Prince's School of Traditional Arts. And she she did she did um, the cover or the, the fly papers uh, for a book, a book for the Queen. Like she's just She's amazing. You have a royal illustrator. Yeah, I am like six degrees <laughs> separated from the queen. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but her name is Aisha Gamiet, and she's doing the illustration. I haven't seen the illustrations yet, but I've I've loved all her work, and um, it's coming out with Wisdom Tales um, either in the 2021 or 2022. But I also have other projects that I can't talk about yet, but hopefully they're going to come through as well. And uh, you can find me um, under the handle of at Roxana Books. Uh, that's R-U-K-H-S-A-N-A uh, Books. And um, that's my Twitter handle and it's my Instagram handle. I'm not very active on Instagram. I'm still trying to figure it out. But Twitter, I, you know, Twitter, I'm mostly I'm uh, following other people and I retweet things that I believe in and I try not to put my foot in my mouth. That's about it. Yeah, I'm the opposite. I'm like really good at Instagram because I'm a very visual person. I can't figure out Twitter for the life of me. Like even for the podcast, I have like 300 followers on Instagram. I have like 20 on Twitter. I cannot figure out Twitter <laughs> for the life of me. Oh my gosh. But, um, but anyway, thank you all so much for being here. This was a really fun conversation. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your uh, whatever time of day it is where you are. For me, it's almost bedtime because I'm an old man. It's seven o'clock. I'm ready for bed. But yeah, thank you all so much for being here. And remember, stay rad.
Hello, my name is Stefan, and please join me every week for my podcast, Some Good Friends, a show where I talk to some good friends of mine. Previous guests have included a Reiki healer, the heir to the Redenbacher popcorn throne, the person definitely not responsible for the murder hornet outbreak, and Jack Nicholson. Comes out Mondays, early in the morning. Check it out, and you might laugh. Hi, I'm Howard Mitnick, host of Gateway Music. Join me as I talk with people about the artists and albums that changed their lives, and about the artists and albums that changed mine. Available on the Upford Network and wherever you get your podcasts.